Hi, this is Dan Sullivan. I'd like to welcome you to the Multiplier Mindset Podcast. Hi, today's FreeZone success story, transformation story is Lee Richter. And Lee is what we call in the strategic coach program, she's a 100% multiplier. And uh, it's actually been working with Lee that I've really, really understood the power of people who are multipliers. I'm a 100% simplifier. Lee is... 100% multiplier. And I just want to talk about Lee because Lee's been a volifier during the pandemic. She's been just so active and so useful to so many people. Lee, we're kind of ending here with the chase scene. This is usually where the movie ends, but we're starting there just to talk about how quickly you were able to size up what was needed and responded almost immediately with a whole new strategy for what was going to happen during the pandemic lockdown? Well, first of all, because I'm in free zone, I'm connected with global leaders that have a mindset of, hey, how can I help? And how can I make a positive impact? So immediately when one of the global leaders came to me directly and said, I need help, I was listening. And what he said is, I need to get the word out on how to stay safe. And what I want to say is for you to stay stay safe first Mm -hmm. and make sure you and your family are safe. And this is really in the first 10 days of March. He said, get home, stay home, don't go anywhere and start sharing that with your community. So I get back home. I tell my team, start taking temperatures, start not letting clients in the front door, start being absolute hospital safe. I was a little ahead of the curve. And then initially they thought, It was a little too much, but later they were grateful that we listened to other experts. And so I'm grateful that in this group was an expert to guide me the right way, but then to have enough knowledge and say, can you share this with the rest of the world? And I was able to use my genius and get the word out to over a thousand media publications around the world around his important message. Yeah, Lee, just in terms of your existing client base as it existed when the downturn, how did you up your value creation to them? Well, first of all, what I did was I started analyzing what were the gifts inside of my business that were so special that, number one, I could bring to the group, to other leaders, but number two, bring to their community, right? So for me, listening to you, what I learned is pay attention to relationship capital right now. Relationships are the most important. Time is always important but how your relationships are are the most important at this crucial moment. So I started analyzing those relationships and just seeing how to exponentially add value, support, even just lend an ear to listen, give value through creation. And yeah, just thinking of things in a new way. In the beginning, we thought it was a pivot, but now I see it as a reinvention. Was there anything that really surprised you about how you performed? Absolutely. I mean, now looking back, there's so many clear and obvious learning lessons, including on this roller coaster ride that we've been all experiencing together as a pandemic. Mindset is so important. And in this group, what I learned is we have an incredible mindset of the future. We're thinking about how the future is going to be even better than the current situation we're in right now. And I see that as something we rally around and through systems and commitment and through hard work, actually, we're planning a better future and it's exciting. And, you know, I see with this group that, you know, we're actually making it happen. We're doing it. We're not just talking about it. Lee, one of the things that our entrepreneurial audience, because this goes out to not only thousands of active strategic coach clients, but people who have been in the program at one time, 
But one thing that I noticed over my almost 50 years of coaching entrepreneurs, that entrepreneurs love entrepreneurial stories, and they especially want to know where people started. So back to the first day when you could truly say, I've crossed the line to being an entrepreneur, when was that? And what prompted you to take the entrepreneurial road? That is such a universally well stated question because all of us need to think about that pivotal moment where we're like, yes, I am absolutely an entrepreneur, especially if we're gifted and we're really good entrepreneurs. I mean, like, let's own it from the beginning. And in the beginning, I used to think, oh, I was like 12 or 13 and selling Girl Scout cookies. And no, it's actually back to when I'm around six years old. And I started doing commercials and I started learning the advertising world and I started learning about sharing your message and how to share your message. Now, what were the circumstances for that? I mean, six years old is... My goodness, I know. It does sound kind of crazy a little. Okay, so when I was six years old, my mom entered me in a thing called Little Miss America. It was in Palisades, New York. And I was excited because there was a roller coaster there. That's what I was prompted for. My brother and I got to go on the roller coaster. Uh, but in the same term, it was like a Little Miss America pageant, like a little girl's pageant. You dress up in dresses and little gloves and patent leather shoes and you have a competition and the judges are talent agents. And so I ended up in the finalists and I got a talent agent that scooped me up. His name was Dick Miller. He was on the cover of TV Guide at the time, which was really big, bigger than Instagram in the moment was TV Guide. And here he was like the number one, you know, I used to wear a little button that said, I'm a Dick Miller kid. But here he, you know, scooped me up and started putting me in commercials. And I started learning the advertising world from the inside out, which is number one, have a message. Number two, have a vessel to deliver that message. And number three, be consistent with that message, which meant over a year, we might do six or nine campaigns to deliver that message home in different ways. So I ended up working with companies like Oscar Mayer Hot Dogs and Clairol Shampoo and all these national brands behind the scenes doing the commercials because I was a Dick Miller kid, a SAG awarded kid in the industry. So when I look back now, I see that that prepped me for being interested in sharing stories. It really was the basis of how I got together in married marketing and PR along with entrepreneurship, because I could see both sides. I could see the brand side of it. I could see me as the participant and the consumer side of it. And I could see, you know, the creative side of it, all of it from the age of six. So now I interpret it differently, but I see it was a good education in the beginning. So with that sort of consciousness that you had very, very early, did you then choose different kinds of experiences to give you different kinds of training? Absolutely. What I learned is my friends had interesting parents who had a lot to share and they loved being mentors. And so by hanging out with my friends in high school and hanging out at their houses for Sunday dinners. And one of them, her dad was a, I think he was a four-star general at the time. I remember getting a four-star general award, but I was, you know, in 10th or 11th grade, that perspective, looking up in awe. And I'd be like, can you teach me things? And he taught me how to read a Wall Street Journal and he taught me the basis of business. So what I learned from that was I could look up to people as people and ask them what was their genius and to mentor me. And they always said, yes, they always said yes. And so I would consume whatever they wanted to teach me. And I think they had pure reason in mind. It was going in a way that I felt like I had a charmed life and could believe them. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what was the story as far as, you know, education, college, university? What did you do then? It's so funny that you and I know each other so long. And this is like such a genuine first time we're exploring some of these 
questions, but thank you for being interested. I will say it's fun to share my story in some ways because I'm discovering some of it recently as being integral and important in my life. And part of it is because I'm looking at the questions I'm learning from you and the group, which is why do I do the things that I do? And when I look back, I'm seeing I love telling people's stories. I love understanding journalism and English and understanding how to tell them in an impactful way. I call it a real, real story. R-E-A-L, it's real. I can identify it. It's important. And R-E-E-L, it's worthy of sharing. Mm -hmm. And so when it makes that great and goes through both of those and I see like it's worthy of sharing, I go to someone like Nick Nanton in the group and say, okay, Nick, what do we do with this? You know, I look at the other talent in our group because I trust the other talent. They're speaking the same language. They're doing the same work. They're having the same intentions, which is to add value. And they can see value and create value. So if I go to other talent in the group, then all of a sudden I can take my idea and the access to talent I have and then multiply it with the talent somebody else in the group might have and then what could happen from there. So that's what's happening to me right now is it's multiplying and popcorn style. You know, you and I laugh about popcorn in the group, but for me, it's more than just the physical popcorn in the group. It's the opening of popcorn style that ideas can come in and it's okay. Mm -hmm. I can have them all come in and I can figure out which ones work best for me and the team and move forward with it. Lee, I know you do three interesting things every day, but if you had to sum up, you had your really early childhood years, you had your teen years. 20s and 30s, what would you say was the breakthrough moment? And then, you know, where you are today, if you had to say three steps that got me to where I am today, what would those three steps be? You know what, I'm so glad you asked me that question because I appreciate you and I appreciate the most talented Babs on the entire planet. And I'm a big fan of Barbara Streisand, so for me to say that, that's a really big deal. But Babs is behind the scene on so many thousands of people making a difference because She knows how to take your genius and multiply it. And so what happened to me in my 20s is I met my husband, Gary. We met in the Bahamas. We were on spring break. We became friends for years. When he graduated undergrad, he was still in high school. He went to four years of college at University of Florida. When he graduated undergrad, he professed his love. We got together as a couple. We've been together since then, which is, we met in 1988. This is the early 1990s. So 32. 91 is when we were like, okay, we're a couple forever. It's been that way ever since. And so I think what I did was your Babs to you is my Gary to me. And he is the simplifier and genius in veterinary medicine. And I love him for that. I love animals. So it's a really great mix. And I get to multiply it all day long. Now, it wasn't always easy. And it wasn't always the way I wanted it to be. But right now, it's really coasting. Yeah, It's really lovely. It's multiplying with ease. The thing that I find very interestingly when you describe, you know, the veterinary side, is that it's not only a successful, I mean, you have a very, very successful entrepreneurial business, and it's not just one thing, it's two or three things, but I think that you and Gary have actually become thought leaders for an entire worldwide industry. And now, I have an ability to actually tell people what it is they're actually doing it, but when did you get an idea that your interest in veterinary and medicine was way bigger than just the actual business. This was about a whole industry. Well, I think the real truth of that is I might have had little moments where I could see into the future and I'm like, wow, there could be something more than this. And I saw my husband was special. 
And it was before coach, ironically, I started seeing these little moments, right? And then I started seeing veterinarians coming to us to have Gary be their veterinarian. And I'm like, hmm, they could go anywhere. They know anyone. And they're picking us. And they're letting me know how special. They'll hand write notes. And they'll be like, just so you know, your husband, Gary, is one in a million. And in 2008, when the markets went down, our veterinary hospital was just booming. And other people in the industry would come to me and ask me, like, how is your so busy when ours is hallowed halls? And I'm like, it comes back to those relationships, right? So he let me do my job. In our company, when we did take a transformation over into saying we're going to do this together, we 100% did two things. Number one, I was one clear leader. I owned 51%. He owned 49%. He's like, I have no ego in this. I just want a great job, and I want to be able to bring to the community something of value. And I defer to you because I trust you, right? It's the babs of everything. He's like, I just want to show up as the talent and be a veterinarian. You show up and want to be leading a coach session and be a coach, right? And she lets you do your job because she does everything else, which is the hard mix of it. It's freaking the hard work, right? But she's a genius. And Gary let me be in my genius. And he really trusted me. And we had some hard conversations. It was never, ever a year that went by. We didn't learn things and level up and have harder conversations. And then a couple times I'm like, I love you. And right now I don't like you. And it's not because we're like, politically talking opposite because we don't we talk a lot the same politically he might be more extreme than me as a vegan veterinarian who doesn't eat meat doesn't wear leather like he might be a little more extreme than me but we think a lot alike and we don't threaten each other so I will say we're in it we have each other's back 100% he still brings me flowers he still texts me five times a day like I'm very very lucky so that was in my 20s in my 30s I had a near-death experience where a charmed life turned really 7% chance of living, 7% chance of walking. He showed up for me every day, having Gary prove to be a good decision. At this point, it was nearly 20 years. And he showed up. He learned holistic medicine. That's how he turned into a holistic doctor, was putting me back together for an entire year, defying all odds, 13 doctors, many opinions, many thoughts. He was like, you're a clear leader. I'm 100% clear leader of Lee's Health. Listen to me. Because I was connected at Stanford and SRI, the CEO of the hospital knew who we were and basically said, whatever Dr. Richter needs, he gets. And from that minute on, he did mold everything. Mm -hmm. He had acupuncturists there where hospitals never liked that idea of outside needles coming in. He's like, sorry, I need acupuncturists every day. He had me on beds that were made out of magnets so that I wouldn't have to have pain medicine. And I actually, with 15 broken bones, both my legs, my arm, my back. Was this the uh, accident? Please? In the accident in my 30s. With all of that, he figured a way that I could have holistic medicine and not need pain medicine by pill form. That's a miracle, right? So that's what I had in return. I stood behind him to share his story. He stood behind me to save my life. Mm -hmm. And so now we're doing both, right? We're ultimately up-leveling our life and sharing our stories. So yeah. what I learned along the way, though, was to pay attention to mentors. I mentioned that in my teens. In my 20s and 30s, I multiplied that. I got better mentors. And then I met somebody named Joe Polish. I knew somebody who knew somebody, right? I hear I knew somebody amazing in my life, which is Jeff Walker, who brought me to people like Joe Polish. Brendan Bashar brought me to Jeff Walker. It was his nice little knit community online, and I was interested in online. And by being in that community, I met Brian Kurtz. And Brian Kurtz was the first one who told me, you need to know Dan Sullivan and Strategic Coach, because he saw how I worked and how I needed systems. And then Joe Polish said the same thing. I met you at a Joe Polish annual event. I signed up immediately. And 
my word for this year is energy. That's why I amplify my energy. But the number two word for the year that I'm noticing over and over again, people are saying to me, and I'm just noticing, is the word blessed. And I'm not like a religious, I am a spiritual person, but the word blessed is coming up all the time. And then if I look at my life and say, what 10 things am I blessed? Honestly, being in coach and being part of this community and being part of free zone and that free zone thinking, I'm most blessed. And I'm blessed because Brian Kurtz made me pay attention. It took me three years to say yes. My calendar was so busy doing things in the pet world, doing things in my world. It took me three years to make room to be in Dan and Bab's mm -hmm. world. And if I could change anything, I'd be Steve crying and I'd be there over 20 years. That's what I'd be. Yeah. But I'm grateful now I'm there and I'm grateful I know people like Steve Krein and Stephen Palter and people that you've brought into my life. So thank you. Your mention of Steve Krein, because there's something very exciting about your thinking and Steve's thinking this year. And just for the viewers, Steve Krein is a longtime strategic coach client, 23 years as of this moment. And really good with technology, really, really deeply understanding healthcare and medicine, just a pure entrepreneur, very successful, one of the early internet pioneers who did extraordinarily well in the 90s and sold just at the right time and very intuitive, very perceptive about what's going on in the world politically, socially, culturally. And he's created an amazing network, but last January, he invited Lee to come to his biggest annual event in San Francisco. And Lee gave a mindset shift for people who are in human healthcare to talk about what they could learn from people who are in the veterinarian side of healthcare. Can you just talk about this? Because I think this is huge for the future. You know, you're doing great things now, you've done great things in the past. But this really starts to be global. And I think you're a tremendous spokespeople for groups of people. But th this is a group yet to be created. You're actually probably going to be creating this group. So can you talk a little bit about the insights that you have about what human medicine can learn from animal medicine, healthcare and healthcare? Yes. And actually, this is a topic that started in 2019 where I actually was looking for what makes a difference. And in January, 2020, I was in Chicago. I was in one of the coach free zone meetings and I actually asked for something I wanted, which I never ever in the years I've been there ever asked before. But I went up and I asked you, Dan, I asked, would you please spend the next breakout with me? Because I want to answer this question. And we spent the time together. I think they had time for like three or four people at four or five minutes. So we had a little block of time and we sat down and you asked me some thought provoking questions, some that I had thought about and could answer right away and some that were more to ponder, even pondering now and still up leveling those answers. But in the moment, what we discovered together, and I think we came with the realization together because when you came to it, I was really surprised. And when I came to it, my husband's like, what took you so long? <laughs> but for me, I came to it at the same time as you, which is really the difference between human medicine and animal medicine. Because a lot of the transactions in our American system, especially in healthcare, a lot of transactions in human medicine are based on going to the doctor, going to the hospital, being somewhere based on fear, based on something I need now to solve something else. Do I have a pill? Do I have a remedy? Is there something I could do fast and quick? Do I have the money? You know. And do I have the money and the um, access, right? And 
oh, I've been in the same system and I've been in the same trying to figure it out. And I'm getting ready, you know, as I'm getting ready to turn 50, I'm like, oh my God, I really need better answers. Luckily, I have access to some better answers right now. My husband's been a big reason why I'm paying attention as a vegan and very healthy, just turned 50. Actually, June 3rd, just recently turned 50. And what happened is I started seeing he's doing the right things. And how can I be closer to doing the right things for me? So I started looking for more mentors and experts. And talking to my husband and talking to our group, what I learned from you is you're right. Human medicine transactions are based on fear. It doesn't have to be that way. But what's beautiful is animal transactions, especially with the veterinarian in that transaction, are really based on love. Based on the love of the animal, wanting to help them, the love that the animal brings into our life, it turns into a really beautiful transaction. So when people come to the veterinary hospital, and I'm going to put a little note here, when you asked me what happened during COVID, we were still able to be essential and open and there for our customers. They appreciated us. They brought more gifts. They brought more thank you notes. And we wouldn't let any of them come in the front door. We realized that only pets can come in the front door. That was what our initiative was to take care of the pets. Every pet comes with a human and we have to make a way for them too. But our real, our love is really for the pets. So in our group and being part of you, Dan, and your group, Dan, and your thinking, what I did, number one, was get access to the thought of, you're right, I can stand in this. Human medicine is based on fear and animal medicine is based on love. Even though I've noticed it, it's more profound than ever. And since you and I discovered it in January and brought it to Steve Crying, who was the next best thing to do is bring it to him and ask him, what do we do with this? What happened in that time was we realized the more we can amplify it, multiply it, the better the world can be, right? What if we're paying attention to animal health and we're paying attention to their impact on our planet? How can we make their impact on our planet better? How can we make it even better? How can we make it even better for the human experience, for the animal experience to be even better? And why should we let them damage our earth anyway? It's all of our earth. None of us want to damage it. If we can make it better, we're making their decisions for them. We're making the decisions for animals when we feed them corn and we feed them other things. Why not make better decisions for their behalf and the planet's mm -hmm. behalf? So that's what I'm talking about with bringing more love is looking at those decisions and seeing how to make them even better. But you brought to me someone like Steve Krein, who's already thinking of it for human health. And we're looking for the intersection, how we can include the conversation around animal health. Talk to me a little bit before we sign off here, Lee. I believe the pandemic, and I just turned 76. So I've seen some crisis moments since the 1940s. I was born just before the Normandy invasion. I was born about two weeks before the Normandy invasion. And the, you know, a lot of world-changing things happened in my childhood. But I have a feeling that the pandemic so far, what we've experienced is kind of unique in my lifetime in this respect, that you could go anywhere on the planet and start a conversation with a stranger and you could pick a topic of the pandemic and the strangers would have a lot to talk about, how they responded and everything like that. And I believe it's the first time in human history that that would be true. There would be another moment that I experienced during, you know, since the 1940s that had this. But one of the big things was the at-home experience for everybody. Mm. You know, and I'm talking a lot about Canada, the United States here. One constant factor for a lot of people was at the home moment when they were home was their pets, their pets, and especially their dogs, especially their dogs. 
And I think that there's been a fundamental shift of relationship of the relationship between humans and dogs that has happened during the last three months. And I just wonder, I mean, you're in the swim with this business, you know, and you know all the who's who in the animal veterinarian world. But would you say it's significant or it's just temporary, something that's happened here, or there is a real shift and that this is going to create entirely new insights, entirely new capabilities in the future about the relationship, especially, I mean, I know, you know, there's all sorts of pets, but a lot of it is with dogs. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And let's dive a little deeper. When you and I talk about this, tell us the history of man and dog. Yeah. Well, I got very interested in this because I have a collaboration of long standing with Peter Diamandis, especially the Abundance 360 program. One of the real things that Peter and his team are introducing right now is having teamwork essentially with software programs and humans having teamwork with artificial intelligence programs where they're actually constantly evolving and they're getting the benefit of you interacting with them and they're interacting with thousands and in some cases millions of other individuals. So three months from now, this software will be more useful than it is today. A year from now, it might be on to the next jump, the next version. Peter and I were talking, well, how do you establish teamwork with, you know, it's not human, it's technological. How do you establish teamwork? And I got to talking about it, and he had me give a little talk on this at Abundance 360. And I said, you know, we have a model for this, actually. And it's the greatest teamwork between species that we have any evidence of, and it's with dogs. As far as we can see, it's probably around 30,000 years ago. It was obviously a crossover from some wolf variety and humans. But, you know, right now, just in calculating the number of things that dogs can do in teamwork with humans, it's in the 80s and 90 different things. And these are real separate skills, Mm -hmm. separate kinds of teamwork. And I said, so we already have a model for how to go about this. But I said, you have to understand that in that relationship, the dogs are zeroing on you to establish how the teamwork's going to go and how the relationship's going to go. And I said, I think we have to remember that when we're dealing with technological partners, that we're the ones who give the indication of what the purpose of this is for and everything like that. And Peter and I are not entirely in agreement with that. With many perspectives and views. I was happy to actually make the statement for dogs, you know, and I said, you know, this is a phenomenal teamwork and uh, we take it for granted. And they're straightforward. Dogs are really straightforward. You know, whenever I see people on the street, I don't have a dog, but I grew up with dogs. I'm a farm boy and I grew up with dogs and we don't have a dog here, but I really take note of the dogs on the street. And I say, you know, they're just about doing a good job. Yeah. That's what I notice about dogs. They're just about doing a really good job. I've kind of gone on here, but talk a little bit about this because I think it's very exciting. Oh, wait, I want to put a little side note on this. As a person who searches out best mentors, my best I can do for myself is learn about your thinking more because you're one of my mentors. So thank you for giving me that time and that input. And you and I have discussed a lot of that, but I even learned new things today. And I'm happy to share that with other people because I know how important it is to know like, wow, 
wait, we've been around dogs for 30,000 years? What? I had no idea. And maybe I did know, but I know differently because I heard it from you in a relationship mm -hmm. manner. And by paying attention to that and seeing the question you just asked me is how much of a pertinent change in our relationship are we having this moment? Based on our history, we've already had a lot of change. There are some things that have been said in the last few weeks that actually show me how big a change this is because according to Stephen Poulter and people that he's talking about, according to people that he loves, make sure you wash your hands, make sure you have PPE, make sure you're staying really safe, but yet they'll walk their dog outside and let them come in and jump on their bed. Why are we different with pets and let them get away with things that we wouldn't even do ourselves? Why are we even oblivious to it? Because we love them so much, we'll let them do these things to bring us warm up. And so our relationship is heightened in love. They're very confused how they have us 24-7 because they've adapted. They might have a long time ago. They knew that feeling at one point. Maybe there's a few people in their 80s, 90s that actually have the luxury of being there with their pets all the time. Maybe it's a codependent relationship. We don't know, but what it is is there's deep relationships with people and their pets. It's not always dogs, but sometimes with dogs it gets a little bit deeper. It becomes their family member. It becomes someone they trust, they talk to. They unveil themselves. They take off masks. They put on masks. They laugh. They dance. They're, they can be 100% themselves and not judged. And so I learn these stories on a regular basis. And what I'm learning now is just like we abruptly came into this with 24-7 being together and falling in love, we now have to think about their perspective a little bit on how it's going to be to untangle and not be there 24-7 and then not feel alienated or upset or feel the change to Neglected. So being conscientious around even, like, I've traded my dog and my daughter's dog, like, had them switch rooms so they could feel just changing their path a little and their routine. I've said to my daughter and I, let's just go for a ride in the car for an hour just so that they can have time in the house alone and they know we're coming back again. So we had over 80 days at home. She's been home 24-7. She's only been out of the house three times. And we took the dogs in consideration each time we left. And when we came back, they immediately became glued to us so we could see that there's a difference. So I think because it never happened before, we're all learning this together. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is share best practices and find ways that can help us have a resource page and share things that we're learning along the way. Like, should they have music in the house? Like, there's a company called Whole Tones, W-H-O-L-E, Whole Tones, that creates music for pets to help them so when they have separation anxiety, they at least have this message coming through to help soothe them. So self-soothing is what we learn. One of the damn messages that I got recently when you mentioned the 1940s and what you've learned, one of the things you recently said is, how much have we developed coping skills? So one of the things we have to think about with our pets, too, is we're teaching them the same coping skills. It's not just us, our kids, our grandparents, our parents. It's our pets, too. They need to learn coping skills, too. Let's include them in the conversation. Yeah. Lee, I met you really and became more frequent was the Free Zone program, and you came in the Free Zone. It's a work in progress, and it evolves, and we're just beyond three years with the program. But the Free Zone is a strategic coach program. We have two levels before that you have to get very, very masterful with, and then you can go to the third level, which is the free zone. And what I'd like you to talk about is what you thought this was going to be at the beginning. And we didn't even have the name when we started. The name came in about halfway through the three years. But essentially, it's where entrepreneurs can collaborate with each other, and it's competition-free. And for the most part, they're creating new value creation models 
which are profitable, which are revenue generating, which are profitable, but they're free of competition. And to the largest extent, they're free of regulation. They're in new zones. And just what your own thought about is what you've observed about the other entrepreneurs who are in the free zone, but also what's happened to your thinking as you're collaborating, as you're creating new value creation. So I'd be very interested for our listeners to actually know how this looks to you because you've, you've been on entrepreneurism for over 40 years in one way or another. So I just wondered what you thought about this. That's true. I didn't think about it that way until now. Free zone, it is free zone and it did start differently, but it was all of us in a free zone. We were in it. We just didn't name it yet. And so you were a smart business person and on the ride, you shared with us why you even had to name it free zone and why you got there and why you've created a place where you can be in a free zone teaching us how to be in a free zone. So it wasn't from the beginning and that's entrepreneurs need to know that from the beginning, it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to just get done and keep improving. I share with my team, look at it now and how can we make it 10% even better? How can we make it 1% even better today, but 10% in the next quarter? How can we look at it and just improve it a little, little micro doses, right? And then when I looked in our group, number one, I was honored that you asked me to join the group. And then after I joined the group, which there were just about 30, 33 of us that joined, Lisa Sini was the only other woman. So Lisa and I are looking at each other like, okay, I don't want to say we're token women, but how are we the chosen women? Okay, we're lucky to be in here. Let's stick together. Let's figure this out. Why are we the ones that they brought in? And the very first meeting, you did a couple of really cool things. Me as a multiplier, you and I talked about gifts and the feeling of, someone receiving something special. On the first day, you had a big box with gifts in it, including a way for us to take our notes on our Apple and the way of being connected and thinking your thoughts and some books. And that was very thoughtful. I liked it. And maybe there's some simplifiers who didn't get it, but I loved it. The other thing I noticed is that you started putting us together as a group and what's the same about us. And you did a thing called print before we were there. And what you noticed was out of 72 combinations, majority of us had four of them as our first or second or both. And because we were so much alike, you hand-selected us and put us in the group to begin with. And what this did was validate, it gave you evidence you were on the right path, and it gave us evidence that we really knew each other. From the beginning, you created a safe place. So you gave us evidence that this was everyone credible to actually be real in the group and share a story and be vulnerable. So 50% was learning, just like all the other groups, everyone is learning, right? Well, 100% of what we're doing in, in general coach group, 10X or any other, is 100% learning from Dan and the other experts on learning. Whereas this one, we were learning from the other people in the group as well. And that was the extension. That was the thing that was really the big difference, but also the secret sauce. The secret sauce in seeing what do we need to pay attention to? What's our, our DOS, right? <laughs> That's what it is. We were living it in 3D in the room because everyone can unveil it in a safe place and talk about what was going on in their life that was a danger, that is an opportunity. And then they saw how they can educate their other people. So I think what happened in the free zone is we came in because you had given it credibility saying this is a special place to be. And then we've just been on the ride because we trusted you and we knew Babs would keep you in line. And that was it. We were just trusting. And now looking back, I'm like, thank God I'm one of the founders. Thank God we're growing up together and adulting together. And who knew Dan could be in his 70s and still be adulting? But as you're adulting, you're teaching us how you are, and then it helps us be better. And what we're learning are the coping skills, the things that are missing, 
the things that you told me behind the scenes of the 1940s that the boomers didn't get, so how could they teach it, is the coping skills. And we're learning it. We're being proactive and we're doing the work. We're absolutely doing the work. But it's with your guidance. You're, you're looking at 100 things and then coming to us with the five or 10 we have to pay attention to right now. So you're discerning big appetite. And then make it an even more discerning, smaller appetite in the bite-sized pieces we can take. So why do I have big who's and amazing who's in my life? It's because you started telling me to pay attention to the who's in my life. Mm -hmm. And so that was my focus because you're like, hey, these are one of your three things. Put it on your list. No questions asked. Mm -hmm. As a journalist, I want to say that in five words or less, which is you are really telling me what to do and I'm listening, but I'm still using my experience and how many rooms I've been in to make sure it's the right thing to listen to. So it's discerning plus my experience equals a better way to spend my time. Yeah. Well, you know, it's put me in the steepest learning curve of my life. So I was telling people that since my 75th birthday, so I'm just a year past, I said, I think the last 12 months have been the steepest learning curve of my life. And it wasn't about me having, you know, to master things so that having anything to do with a strategic coach company as such, but it was just that something really great is happening here. And I just want to take my coaching skills and take my conceptual skills up to that every time we meet that something new is gained for them as individual entrepreneurs, but also as part of a really unique community. It's an amazing community. I just don't think I'm ever going to have it mastered. I'm always going to be motivated that during the next 90 days or the next two weeks, I'm going to have to hustle to stay up with what's required for this. So you mentioned, you know, adult thing, but actually, It's a question of young or old, really. And I find that old is when your past is much bigger than your future, and you're young when your future is much bigger than your past. And I think that happens in our brain, but I think it happens with our hormones. I think that we stay young physically if our ambition and our vision of the future requires us to be kind of Childlike, we're kind of learning. And I just want to ask a question because it's kind of an entrepreneurial meme. And I said, it strikes me after coaching entrepreneurs for almost 50 years that entrepreneurs are the individuals who are closest to who they were when they were six years old. And you told the story about the six year old Lee. And I just wonder how close you are that you feel right now to who that girl was that applied for the Little Miss America contest. Wow. Well, (laughs) the timing of this question is really key to my answer because last Friday I had someone, her name's Brandy Gilmore, who's brilliant. And if you have the chance to watch her TEDx talk, it's in Santa Barbara. She's absolutely amazing. And she's a PhD that's doing work at USC on brains and capacities and what she had me start doing is looking at stories from that period of time. That's why Little Miss America was on my brain and that period of time. And she had me investigating stories from when I was younger and looking at the ending of the stories. Like when I tell the story, where's the peak where I feel the most loved? And she goes, end the story there. And so she has me looking at this. So I actually see so many similarities that started then. And I see how I get tickled sharing those stories. And I see how I get tickled, like connecting the dots and making a pathway towards more happiness and and more fulfillment and more ease and, you know, just being in that part of my life. So 
I am seeing a lot of that wonderment come back in my life because of reenacting those times and those stories from when I was six. So it just started happening in the last couple of weeks to have this assignment to really investigate where I feel the most loved. And so I'm feeling the most happy around these stories and I'm bringing that energy into my adult life now. But I think that it's been there and it's probably been something I draw on in unconscious confidence. But now that I'm actually going to get it, I see how special that wonderment time is. And I'm glad I was being imprinted with positive can-do things. I was working in the Twin Towers in Manhattan. I had no idea how big a deal that was until now, looking back that it doesn't exist, where I thought it'd be there my entire lifetime. But in my ages of six to 12, that was my work was in the Twin Towers. Like that I had that as part of my life that I got to do that. And then later in my adult life, working at Merrill Lynch, I was sent there to do projects and work on a two-year program as part of Wharton School of Business. They had a two-year program made for us, and we went to the Twin Towers to do the work. And so it came full circle in my 20s. And now looking back, I see how it gave me also a brighter future. It also taught me, what did it teach me? It taught me coping skills. Because guess what? When those Twin Towers came down, it was real to me, and I did have to get to the other side, and I did have to have a story that empowered me to have a bigger future. So it was personal. So that's the through line is that each of those is basically, as Nanab would say, it's a room that you've been in, and later you can draw on that attention of what did it take to be in that room, navigate that room, and get out of that room the best you can be, and draw on that attention and that experience. So. Thank God that at age six, I had a good experience to draw on. Thank God. I'm really grateful for that. And right now, that's literally become a focus because of my assignment. It's not something I always have on the top surface, but it's there right now. Lee, thank you very much. Thank you. I feel honored. Thank you.